Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you today. We've been in a series called The Untold uh, Stories of Christmas, but, but some of the stories are not just untold. Actually, some of the stories are, are mistold. And one of the ways that uh, we mistell stories on a regular basis is with uh, nativity sets. And I am certainly not saying uh, that you should get rid of your nativity set. We have a bunch of them. In fact, I love them. But, but what I would say to you is don't make them uh, the gospel. In fact, in this set, we don't have the barn because I don't like the barn because there was no barn. Uh, Jesus wasn't born in a barn. He was born in a house, maybe a cave uh, that was used as a house. He was born in a room in the house where they kept all of the animals. Uh, Families rarely back then had a barn, and and he wasn't placed in a wooden cradle uh, like like this. Uh, In fact, it was probably made of stone uh, because the animals drank from it. And and Mary, this is one of the worst pieces of of most nativity sets, Uh, she looks like she just walked out of a salon uh, rather than having just given birth an hour ago. And the baby Jesus, I'm not sure why he's always blonde-haired and blue-eyed. I'm pretty sure Jesus looked like me. And uh, uh, we we know that to be true. But I want to point out uh, another part of the nativity set, another part of the nativity set that that Matthew talks about. In fact, this is where I want to drop anchor today uh, with with the wise men, the wise men. And uh, most of our nativity sets have three of them. Uh, Most scholars don't believe that there were three uh, wise men. In fact, many scholars would say there may have been as many as 300 uh, wise men. Uh, they weren't there likely on Christmas Eve. Uh, it, it was most likely two years later uh, that the wise men show up to see uh, Jesus. In, in fact, if you got your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, we'll pick up where we left off last week. And we've been reading Matthew's Christmas story this year. And let's just back up and get a running start in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. This is Herod the Great. We talked about him in, in pretty great detail last week. We said he's the one who repaired and restored the temple, but he was also very dangerous. He was ungodly, and he did a lot to destroy the faith of Israel, actually. And and let's just keep reading verse uh, 2 about that time. Now, just write this in the margin of your Bible, if you would. That's not a great translation about that time. That Greek word literally should be translated after. It's a very vague word, actually. Uh, Sometimes we put the wise men in the uh, nativity set because of that word right there about that time. That that word literally means after. And uh, some wise men from the eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is this newborn king of the Jews? We saw uh, the star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, here's the question I really want to deal with today. Who are the wise men? The, the original uh, text calls them magi or, or magicians, right? That's where we get our word magician. Uh, these guys are magicians, and they practice spiritual arts. They're experts in all religions. They had to be because they come from the East, and most scholars, again, we, the Bible is not clear other than the direction they are coming from, but most scholars believe Babylon or, or Persia is, is where they're coming from, and they would conquer all lands, and when they would conquer land, they would incorporate the people from all of the lands that they conquered, and instead of 
telling them, stop practicing your religion, they would learn their religions and use it against them. And so these wise men, these magi, they see a star in the sky, and because of their study, they know this is something special. And they know something's up, but they're not sure exactly what it means. And so they go to the library and they start pulling books off the shelf and they're reading the books and looking at the books and they pull off the books of uh, Baal and they pull off the books of Molech and they pull off the books of Ishtar, nothing in those books that that they pull down the Assyrian books, they pull down the Babylonian books, they pull down uh, the, the Chaldean books and they search all through the books and they can't find anything about this star. Then one of them says, hey, wait, wait. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You remember that guy named Daniel? Daniel came from a place called Jerusalem, and he brought some books with him. And so they go to the shelf and they pull those books down, the Jewish scriptures. We call it the Old Testament today. And they start looking and they find it. And here it is eventually. Here it is. This star is for the king of the Jews. And so they load up their camels and they head out and they make it to Jerusalem. And if it's Babylon, if it's Persia, that's almost a thousand miles at 20 miles a day. This is at least 40 days on a camel. It makes coming to church sound pretty easy for you and I today. And by the way, not three of them. Some scholars think as many as 300 of them. It was a big group. They were probably armed. Uh, They likely had soldiers with them. And and, and they were known all throughout the world as kingmakers. And when they showed up, they were going to declare somebody as king. And so they go see Herod, who thought He was the king of the Jews. And they asked the question, where is this child born king of the Jews? And Herod gets nervous and he gets scared and he gets angry. And he thought they were showing up to declare him as king. Instead, they were coming to declare this little kid as king. Now look what happens in verse four. He, that is Herod, called a meeting of the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. Let me ask the camera to do something here. That's bothering me. Of the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law and asked, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread, right? This is the living bread, Jesus says of himself later. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, don't discount that, is attaching the birth of this baby to all kinds of Old Testament prophecy. Okay, now I'm going to show it to you in a moment. Hang on to that thought. Verse 6, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Herod tells the wise men, hey, I want to worship this new king too. And the wise men are like, are are you sure? Because that's not the vibe we're picking up here, right? That, that we're picking up that you're mad, you're furious. In fact, we're picking up you want to kill that baby. But, but watch what happens in the text. Look, look at verse uh, 9, if you would. After this interview, the wise men went their way, 
and the star they had seen in the east. Interesting, you can write out beside this. This phrase, in the east, is modifying uh, the wise men. So it's the star they had seen while they were in the east, okay? So for those of you who are inquiring minds, that would trip you up because if they're in the east and they saw the star in the east, it would just lead them the wrong way, right? So it's, it's not that. That phrase actually is modifying the magi who were in the east when they saw the star. Guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with, say it, joy. They were filled with joy. Verse 11, they entered the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. They opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and and myrrh. This, by the way, is where we get the tradition of three uh, wise men, because there were three uh, gifts. Not great deduction, actually. And and we we, we can't keep reading. We need to stop here uh, and remember who these guys are. They're involved in all kinds of religion. They are not Jewish. They are not God followers. They're not monotheists. In fact, they're idolaters and they are king makers. Now, the question that we ought to ask here is what made them bow down and worship and give generously? I think it is very safe to read into this passage. They were converted. There is something about this king. There is something about this baby. There is something about this Messiah that caused them to abandon everything, all of their religion, all of their idolatry, in favor of the king of kings. Remember, gold represents royalty, frankincense represents priesthood, and myrrh is for the burial. I wish I had time to dive into all the places that myrrh is mentioned uh, around the person of Jesus. But this baby was the king of all kings. He's the high priest of all high priest. He's the one who would one day be crucified and buried for the sins of all mankind. Now let's keep reading. In in verse 12, look at what it says. When it was time to leave, they, that is the wise men, the magi, they returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to the crazy guy, right? After they were gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, Flee. By the way, that, that word is a fun one to say in Greek. It's fugo. Say fugo. Fugo. Flee. It's interesting that the author, uh, Matthew, uses that word because w- what, what that means is that Jesus is a fugitive. He, he, he's a fugitive in this story. Flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. And the angel said, stay there until you return because Herod is going to search for the child to try to kill him. God knew what Herod was up to. God saved the wise men, God saved Jesus, and God saved his family. Look look, look at verse 16. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Now, here's why we think that the wise men showed up two years later, okay? Herod figures out that the wise men aren't coming back. He's waiting in his palace. He's anxious. He's stewing. You know, he's tapping his fingers. His advisors are all getting nervous. And then all of a sudden it dawns on him. They're not coming back. They're they're not going to fall for the trap, right? They're they're not going to lead him to the Messiah so that he can kill him. Uh, They're going to, now he's going to have to go down to Bethlehem and take care of this all by himself, right? Or, Or for himself. So he calls the commander of the army in. He brings him in and says, Hey, I have a very important task for you. To, to which the, 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 the guy says, uh, who is it? 
He says, I want you to go to Bethlehem, and, and, and I want you to head down with all of your men uh, to Bethlehem. <clears throat> and he does the math. You, we, we read this in the text. And, and uh, he asked the wise men, when did you see the star? And they said it was two years ago. And so he says, here's the deal. Get your guys, go down there, and kill every single male two years or younger. And the commander had to have said, what? Did, did, did I hear that right? And Herod says, do it or I'll kill you. And, and, and so the commander goes and tells the lieutenant. The lieutenant goes and tells the sergeants. The sergeants go and tell their troops. I have no idea if I got those right in the right order. But, 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 but uh, and, and up and down the line, right? They're all saying, is this right? Is this right? But, but they're told, you do it or else. And so they march into Jerusalem. They go house to house. And, and they go house to house and they ask, do, do you have any baby boys here. And, and, and the families that have boys, they ask, well, how old are they? And when they say he's two years old, or he's one year old, or he's six months old, the soldiers drag those boys out into the street, and they pull out their sword, and they kill the baby. And I want you to get the picture here, and get the scene that is playing out, because it is brutal, it is cruel, it is vicious. Verse 17. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. Here's another prophecy. I'll come back to that in a minute. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. I I was reading this this summer, studying for youth camp in Branson, Missouri, and I read this and thought this will end up in the Christmas series because it caught my attention for the first time and all the times that I've read it. And And you and I, we read this and we think, that's no Christmas story. Alex, I thought this was Christmas time. I thought you were going to tell us about Jesus and, and angels and about a way in a manger and oh holy night and chestnuts on an open fire. This is horrible. And, and this is terrible. What does this have to do with, with, with Christmas? I'm going to take you down an ADD rabbit trail that I went down this week in the scriptures. There are five prophecies that Matthew lists in his Christmas story. The the first one back in chapter one is that he will be born of a virgin. We talked about that one, right? The the second one is that he will be born, we just read it a minute ago, in Bethlehem. There's a prophecy that says he will come out of Egypt. And then there's another one that he will live in Nazareth. And all four of those seem very Christmassy right? Uh, Goodwill to all uh, kind of prophecies. But in the middle is this prophecy about dead babies, which makes zero sense to you and me. Why did Matthew add that? And I want to show you today how this relates to Christmas. And I want to share with you the untold Christmas story and show you how Jesus not only fits into it, and it fits into this tragedy that this unexpected devastation in the lives of these poor people and show you how Jesus is actually God's promise today to broken families. And first of all, we need to go back in time to this Rachel woman. Who is Rachel that that Matthew mentions? I've I've made a little chart for you uh, today. Rachel was the wife of Jacob, right? Jacob was also known as Israel, right? Which makes her in some ways the the mother of the nation. In fact, I've been to Rachel's tomb uh, in Ramah in in Jerusalem, and it's a fascinating sight to see hundreds of people every day go go to her tomb thousands and thousands and thousands of years later. And and so Jacob, remembered, I, I want you to see this, is the son of Isaac. It's not a trick question. I'm pointing to the word. Jacob is the son of Isaac. Isaac is the son of 
Abraham. Okay, so I want you to remember the, the bloodline here. And Jacob is told, go back to your grandparents' land and find a wife. Remember that story? So he goes back there and he meets a guy named Laban. Laban has two daughters, right? One is named Rachel, who ends up marrying Jacob. This is the one we're talking about today. And according to the scripture, Rachel is gorgeous. The other, Leah, has a good personality. (laughs) So let's just say it that way, okay? And, and, And Jacob says to Laban, I will work for you for seven years. And if I do that, will you let me marry Rachel? You know the story. It's so twisted that he puts in seven years of labor and seven years of work, and then they have a big wedding, and everyone's partying, and everyone's having a good time, including Jacob. They have too much to drink. Clearly, he does, because when he wakes up, it's, uh uh-oh, he accidentally married Leah. And I know it sounds Jerry (laughs) Springer-ish, but hold on, because it gets better or or worse, depending on your view uh, of this whole story, because now Laban says, hey, Jacob, work another seven years for me, and then you can too marry Rachel. So Jacob puts in another seven years of work, he marries Rachel, and now he has two wives who are sisters. And to make sure that Leah feels loved in this scenario, God allows her to have lots of kids. But Rachel has no kids. And the Bible tells us in the Old Testament, don't miss the phrase, Rachel wept. She wept. She cried. Rachel. Have you heard that phrase? We just read it in in, in Matthew's story, right? There are three times, okay? This is the trail that I went down. There are three times that I can find that the scriptures indicate that Rachel wept. Genesis 30, those of you who write stuff down, Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. Rachel cries out, give me children or let me die. And God hears that cry. And she becomes pregnant. And she gives birth to a son named Joseph. I'm helping you today. She gives birth to a son named Joseph. You remember Joseph, right? Joseph is the one whose brothers sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. He ends up rising to the level just under Pharaoh, right? And he, he rescues the whole family. In fact, he rescues the whole world from famine. In, in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, that famous verse, he says to his brothers, uh, the enemy meant this for harm, but God turned it around for good and for the lives of many. So that's the first time that Rachel cries. But then she gets pregnant again, and the whole family is on the move to guess where? Bethlehem, and outside Bethlehem, in in the suburb of Bethlehem, on that dusty road to Bethlehem, just outside of it, in a place called Ramah. She goes into labor. Genesis 35 is where this is found. Genesis 35, and it says while she is giving birth, she is dying, and she is in agony, and she cries out. She cries out. Now, look at it, uh, what, what she cries out. Verse 18, Genesis 35, she's about to die, but with her last breath, she names the baby Ben-Onai. Ben-Onai means son of my sorrow. After she dies, his dad is like, no way, we're not calling that baby that. We're calling the baby Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. That's the second time Rachel cries. And at that very moment in the text, listen to me, birth and death intersect. So why does Matthew, when talking about Jesus' birth, mention Rachel's cries were heard in Ramah? Ramah represents death and destruction and separation. In fact, there's another place that Ramah is mentioned in Scripture, 2 Kings uh, chapter 
uh, 2, I think. No, chapter 24. 2 Kings chapter 24. And, and in 586, we studied this when we looked at Daniel. In 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar marches against Jerusalem. And he took the king and his whole family into bondage. And along with the king and his family, he took 10,000 young people the best and the brightest of Israel, the most gifted, the most talented, the ones with the most potential. Obviously, the hand of God was upon them, and they were carted off into exile. Nebuchadnezzar says, I want those boys for my kingdom. And by the way, this is exactly why the Magi knew about Jesus, because those same boys who went into exile took the word of God with them, and that's how they knew what would happen and knew about the star. Ramah is the place, now don't miss this, where the exiles, those 10,000, were gathered for exportation. The history books call it the 10,000 in Ramah. This is where these children were abducted and taken away from their families, loaded on wagons, and carted off to Babylon. Can you imagine that train station? As, as this is going on, the anguish on display in that moment as mothers and fathers are weeping and screaming and crying. And, and if you've ever watched a movie, your mind immediately just went to World War II and, and what Hitler was doing with those train cars and the Jewish people in that day. And Jeremiah, Jeremiah, the prophet of God, is saying, and I heard a voice. Of course, Jeremiah, there are thousands of voices. They're all screaming. They're all crying. And he's, oh, no, 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 no. I heard a voice over the soldier screaming, get in line. I heard a voice over all the screaming and the wailing of the mothers and the fathers. I heard a voice over hell whispering, these are mine. These are mine. By the way, that, that spirit's not dead. He's still saying the same thing over your kids and my kids. And, and, and what Jeremiah says is, no, 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 no. I heard Rachel who's been gone for centuries. I heard her wailing. And that's the third cry of Rachel. And the prophet Jeremiah writes about this, and centuries later, what, what Matthew is now quoting, Matthew quotes this, Jeremiah chapter 31, look at it, if you will, Jeremiah 31 verse 15, this is what the Lord says, a cry was heard in Ramah, deep anguish and bitter weeping, Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for her, child are, her children are no more. When Rachel grieved the first time over her barrenness and lack of children, it appeared that God's promise to Abraham was going to die out. Centuries later, in fact, a thousand years later, Jeremiah recorded that, uh, that all of Judah grieved when it looked like the messianic line would be endangered. And Matthew feels that same fear when Herod kills all the baby boys in Bethlehem. Think about it from the perspective of the Magi. Think if the Magi had received word of Herod's rampage without knowing that Jesus escaped. They might have lost all hope in, in, in that moment. So it's no wonder then that Matthew includes Rachel's weeping as part of the prophecy attached to the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. And that included the slaughter of all the little boys in, in Bethlehem. This is the part of the Christmas story that stays untold. That, that this is the part because we all want the, the, the sweet little baby Jesus uh, asleep on the hay, right? That's what we all want. We, we want the song that says, no crying he 
makes. Give me a break. Did you hear this baby just a moment ago? <laughs> Beautiful baby. We all relate to that, right? We, none of us relate to a baby who, who, who doesn't cry. And Jesus was no exception. I, I love that this is a real book that deals with real life and tells the real stories and doesn't try to sugarcoat anything. Honestly, I can't relate to a newborn who's not crying for his mama. I can't relate to the Virgin Mary, right? I can't relate to this whole nice nativity set. What I can relate to is Rachel because she's real and she's crying and she's begging and she's pleading. And this is all part of the Christmas story that we can relate to, the brokenness of families. And, and, and I have to tell you, I've spent nights like that. I've spent nights pleading to God for my own kids. I've spent nights pleading to God for your kids, for families in this church, out of this church, never been to this church. And, and my cry is a lot like Rachel's cry. And, and, and so were all of these figures, right? The, these wise men, the, these wise men, they journeyed uh, from far away for what? To see a king. Instead, they're given a front row seat to death and destruction uh, of babies. And, and Joseph, he wasn't uh, just sitting off to the side like a nice little bystander, right? He was broken inside. We read about it a few weeks ago, trying to decide, am I going to sign that divorce decree? And, and Mary, sweet Mary, listen, she knew what was going to happen. Mary, did you know? Yes, she knew. She, she knew that her baby Jesus was going to be nailed uh, to a cross. And, and all of us have all these expectations and all of these uh, parts of our lives that have been shattered over and over and over again by an enemy who's come to kill and steal and destroy. And all of our lives feel like Rachel's. Her wailing and her weeping, just like the tears of those families who were watching those boys carted off into exile. J just like the horror that the mamas felt when Herod killed their baby boys. A and this, is the real Christmas story. This is the story that Matthew is portraying for us. The nativity set that you and I are so accustomed to and the nativity set that Matthew describes are very different from one another. And this is so much closer to reality. Not just the reality of that first Christmas, but also every Christmas that you and I feel this, the crush of sin and the crush of sorrow every day that we live on this broken earth. That's the Christmas story, that he came into a broken world. <clears throat> Not because we got our act together. Not because we repented for the most part. Not because we said, God, you're right and, and we're wrong. He came into a world that was utterly broken. But he did not come to leave us broken. Why? Because inside that death and inside that destruction is hope. And they knew it, they knew it, they knew it. You, you say, how, how did they know it? Matthew quoted the beginning of that prophecy from Jeremiah 31. But every Hebrew listener of Matthew's gospel would have known the rest of that verse. 
And when Matthew quoted it, that they would hear the rest of that prophecy in their minds like a melody that they had to finish in their heads. So, so just like last week, let's go back and read the prophecy itself as it's recorded in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 31, after verse 15, look, look at verse 16. But now, say now, this is what the Lord says. Do not weep any longer. Why? For I will reward you, says the Lord. There is a hope for your future, says the Lord. And your children will come again to their own land. This is actually the overall theme of the whole Bible. That there has been one pursuing the offspring, the children of women, all the way back to Eve in Genesis. And at the other end of the scripture, in Revelation chapter 12, the writer paints the picture of the nativity from the perspective of heaven. And in that nativity, we see Mary pregnant and crying out with birth pains, the agony of giving birth. And and next to her is a dragon with seven heads there, ready to devour the baby. That's the same spirit we just read about who tried to take Rachel's baby. The same one who's tried to steal the promise by carting those boys off into exile. And, And the same one who tried to extinguish that baby by killing every baby boy in Bethlehem. But that baby was rescued. Until he landed on a cross for the sins of all mankind. And again, the devil thought he had won. But on the third day, he he rose again. And Revelation 21, one chapter before the end of the book, it tells us that he will wipe every tear not just from Rachel's eyes, but from all of our eyes. And there will be no more death and no more sorrow and no more crying and no more pain. And all of these things will be gone forever and ever. And and here's the good news. Ramah is not a dead-end street. A child was born on that road, and he shall break the chains of shame and condemnation. And if you are broken this Christmas, you are exactly who Jesus came for. He shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray together across all of our campuses, every head bowed and every eye closed and every heart open. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, today could be the day of salvation for you. And I want to lead you in a prayer, helping you trust Christ and trust the Lord as your personal Lord and Savior. At every campus, you're going to hear men and women and boys and girls praying all around you. You say, I don't know how to pray, Pastor. I'll pray it one phrase at a time so that you can repeat it after me. But I don't want you just to repeat it in a rote fashion. I I, I want you to pray it to a God in heaven. And so if you want to trust Christ today, would you pray with me and say, Dear God, 
I know I'm a sinner. But today I ask you to forgive me for all of my sin. Jesus, come into my life to be my Lord, my Savior, my forgiver. Thank you for saving me and forgiving me, dying for me on that cross in my place. And the best way that I know how, I turn my back on my sin and I trust you alone, Jesus, to save me. Thank you for saving me. If you just prayed that prayer and you meant it with all of your heart, can, can we say to you, congratulations? Can, can we say to you, Merry Christmas? Welcome to the family of God. And church, for the rest of us, listen, we, we, we have a hope. And that hope is a person. And he has a name and it is Jesus And because of Christmas, there is hope for you, hope for your family, hope for brokenness. And and, and church, we cannot miss the window, the window of openness this week provides to that hope. Last week, we we prayed for God to send prophets into the lives of our family and friends who who are lost. We also prayed that God would make us prophets on the path of other people's friends and loved ones. And I want us to continue that prayer today. In fact, would you just take a moment right where you are, doesn't matter at which campus or where you're watching from, and would you pray those two prayers again? In fact, let me ask you if you would, just, just share the name of the person you're praying for with somebody on your right or your left, that they may pray with you for that person, that loved one that you care about that is far from God. Now you pray for the name that you just heard. Then in your own words, would you pray, God, put me on the path of somebody this week who some believer is praying for that they may not be able to reach because they're too close. Give me the courage to speak a word, to make an invite, to bring them to a service. And as you finish praying those two things, would you also pray for those who are weeping like Rachel this Christmas? Would you pray for those who are brokenhearted and discouraged, for those who are going to celebrate Christmas, maybe for the first time without that loved one who passed away this year? For those who are going to celebrate their first Christmas in a broken home because of divorce. For those who are with broken dreams and broken hearts and shattered lives. Would you pray for those who are weeping all around us? Like Rachel, we're surrounded by people who are weeping and who are broken. Would you pray for for those people for a moment?